When David asked that you uh, pray, that you'll hear the last part of the sermon, I don't know if he was saying that the first 30 minutes of the sermon are not worth listening to, or whether he expected me to fall over after 30 minutes, both of which may be true. Uh, my wife probably gave the best counsel. She said, just make it quick and sit down. As my old uh, homiletics professor used to, stay, used to say, stand up, speak up, and then shut up. <clears throat> I just have that stomach flu that's going around, and it's not terminal, although I think it is sometimes. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is an extremely difficult passage of Scripture. Christians uh, disagree uh, vehemently over the meaning of this uh, passage, though they should not get out of sorts with one another. Um, if you want to hear another version of this, of this text, come tonight and listen to Brian Fisher. He looks at it entirely differently than I do, and uh, yet we uh, still get along and love each other, which is the way it, it should be. I have looked at this passage for 30 years or more. I first uh, began, to, began to think seriously about it when I was a freshman in seminary. And I came to certain conclusions, uh, which I shared with a professor friend of mine. And his reaction was, please do not tell anybody what you think. Uh, <laughs> Do not open your mouth. Do not even think about it for four years if you want to get out of this school. That was good counsel. And uh, that's exactly what I did. I didn't think about it for four years, and then I spent the last 25 years trying to decide what I think. It is extremely difficult. Um, let, let, I'm going to have to give a lot of background because I understand that many of you simply do not have the biblical background for understanding this, this passage. We have people here who are new Christians. We have people here who are not yet Christians, who are coming simply to investigate the truth. And you may not have the backlog of information that some of us have. So I need to do some explaining for you. Let me say, first of all, that that all authentic Christians, that is, those who take the Bible seriously, believe that Jesus is coming again. I don't know of any real Christian who questions that fact. Jesus said it. The angels confirmed it. The apostles uh, stated it. The apostle Paul, here in this passage that, the, that we'll read in a moment, describes our Lord's coming in, uh, in very clear terms. There's no question about the fact that our Lord is coming in. The angel said, this same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven will so come in like manner. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that uh, the pages of the New Testament rustle with a rumor of hope. This notion that Jesus is coming again is woven through the warp and woof of Scripture. I don't see how you could take the Scripture seriously without believing that one of these days our Lord is coming back to set things right. There's, not, there's another thing that I think all Christians agree upon, and that is that the final manifestation, the, the final period of human history is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, Jesus described the consummation of history in terms of childbirth. He said that uh, as we get closer to the end of the age, 
the contractions that bring about the end of history will increase in intensity and in their frequency, and the last great historical contraction will be something unlike we've ever seen in in history. Things will get exceedingly difficult. This is uh, that period of time that the scriptures describe as a period of great tribulation. Some would limit that period to a finite number of years, seven years. Other would, others would say that the seven years is a symbolic number describing, describing a completed period of time. In other words, in God's sovereignty, he determines the amount of time that this final great convulsion, a spasm of evil, uh, will, uh, will exist. It seems that at the very end, God simply takes his hands off of men and women and he says, all right, you can do what you please. He is restraining evil now. The time will come when he will simply let us do what men and women have wanted to do all along but have been restrained from doing. And we will see what is inside the hearts of men and women who do not love God. It will all come out. And as the scriptures teach us, it will be embodied in one person, who's described variously as the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Now, it's about this person that our text is concerned. Let's look at it uh, for a moment. Verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter Supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. The word that Paul uses for coming here is a word that was used in Paul's day of the appearance of some eminent person, some dignitary, a king who showed up, who put in an appearance. Paul says, one of these days our Lord will make an appearance. He will come. Parousia is the word. You may have heard that, uh, that word uh, defined concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, Paul writes, and our being gathered to him. When he comes, he will gather us to himself. Now, it's very clear from this passage that that coming is the second coming. Because later he describes our Lord meeting out judgment on the man of sin. This will be a visible, obvious uh, coming. And at that point, we will be gathered together with him. This is the passage that has led me to believe in the improbability of a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, I do not believe that the church will be taken out of this time of trouble, either before or during or afterward. It will happen, well, afterward, yes. It will, it will come about when our Lord returns, and we will be gathered together with him to meet him uh, in the air. What had happened in Thessalonica was that people thought that the Lord had already come. They were in this period of trouble. Uh, a rumor was spreading. There was some letter purported to be from the Apostle Paul, some revelation that came, some prophetic utterance, to the end that the Lord had come. Now, I don't quite know what they understood that coming to be. They probably thought of it in terms of his first coming. Perhaps they thought he had come to the Mount of Olives. He was gathering disciples. Uh, the, the, the process had already begun very similar to the uh, first coming of, the, the process very similar to the first coming of Jesus. 
And they were confused. Paul says, you're unsettled, you're shaken up. And they needed this word of of instruction. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, that is the coming of our Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord, his intervention in history, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. If the church were to be raptured before this great tribulation, the simple answer to that problem would be, no, this is not the day of the Lord because you would not be here. You would already be with the Lord. Paul rather says there are certain signs that you need to be looking for that presage the coming of the Lord. They are indications that that coming is right around the corner. And he gives us two. A great rebellion or apostasy, a general turning away from the truth and the manifestation of the man of lawlessness, as he's described here, who takes his seat in the temple. Now, let me give you a little more background. There are, there's a theme uh, in the Old Testament that carries particularly through the book of Daniel and it runs on into the New Testament. It's this idea that occasionally in history, the evil that's in men's hearts is embodied in one individual. It all comes out so that we really get to see ourselves as we are. And that at the very end of history, there will be one man who more than any other epitomizes the spirit of lawlessness that's resident within us, apart from God's activity. This man is a a sort of uh, audio-visual aid of what every man or woman would be like if God did not restrain the evil in us in one way or another. Now, throughout history, there have been various personages that uh, we can hang that title on, the the man of lawlessness. And if you read through the book of Daniel, this is the sort of thing that, uh, that that you discover. Daniel lived shortly, well, he lived during the time when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was built by Solomon in the 10th century B.C. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. Daniel lived during that time. He was taken off into Babylon about 606. The temple was destroyed in 586. So he was in Babylon when the temple was destroyed. He was deeply distressed by the desecration of the holy place. And he asked God what his plan was for his holy place in the future. And we expect God to say, I'm going to protect that site throughout history. But what God revealed to Daniel is that there would be a series of desecrations. And without going into a lot of history, a lot of detail in trying to expound the book of Daniel to me, to you, let me simply tell you that there were there are four desecrations of the temple that are described in the book of Daniel. The first is the Babylonian destruction of the temple. The second was the destruction of the temple in the middle of the second century B.C. by a Syrian general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the madman. He called himself Epiphanes, God manifest. He claimed to be God. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by offering a sow on the altar. 
Daniel describes in great detail the uh, character of this of this man, and he he describes him in in in, in terms that I uh, referred to earlier as the embodiment of evil itself. You want to see what evil looks like? Look at this man Antiochus Epiphanes, seated himself on the throne of God, claimed to be God himself. The third destruction of the temple is described in uh, Daniel 9, and it took place uh, in 70 A.D. when Vespasian and then Titus destroyed the temple. The Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and burned and destroyed the, the temple. And then there is a fourth destruction of Jerusalem that is yet future. It was future from the standpoint of Daniel. It was future from the standpoint of Jesus. He refers to it in Matthew 24. It's future from the time of, uh, to the time of uh, Paul. And this is this man of lawlessness that Paul describes who takes his seat in the temple of God, who claims to be God. This final uh, final revelation of what we are really like apart from the grace of God. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill once referred to a particularly arrogant and inflexible colleague of his. Uh, as he walked away, he said to a friend, there but for the grace of God goes God. And uh, uh, he could say that about all of us. Do you realize that? But for the grace of God, we would consider ourselves to be God. See, that's the fundamental problem with all of us. We want to be God. We want to be in the center. We want everything to revolve around us. We want everyone to pay attention to us. We want everyone to minister to us. And uh, we enthrone ourselves as God. Now, that started back in the garden. That's why whenever you hear someone say, you, you and God are one. You know, God is one with the earth. God is one with the sky. God is one with you. What they're basically saying is that you're God. And you ought to hear a little hiss in the background because that was first voiced by the serpent who slithered up to, uh, to Eve and said, you can be God. That's the big lie. That's the lie that pervades the human race. And Paul says that in the end, that lie will be embodied, epitomized in one person who will actually enthrone himself in the temple and will claim to be God. Now, let me, uh, let me, uh, let me have you turn to 1 John 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. Uh, the world is getting old, John says. He is referring to this uh, inter-advent period in which we live. It began when Jesus came the first time. It will close when Jesus comes the second time. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist, the one who personifies evil in the world, is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. Now, you need to understand that that prefix, anti or anti in Greek, can mean both against and substitute for. This person who comes, as we're going to see in a moment in Revelation 13, is very much like Jesus. We expect him to be a dirty old man. But he is not manifested in that way. He is very much like the Messiah. 
And John says that in this last hour, that's the era in which we live, as you have heard, they heard this from Jesus himself, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many substitute Christs have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, that is, with we apostles, with us apostles. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Spirit of Truth, who has spoken through the apostles. You have the Word of God, and all of you know the truth. You don't know everything about everything, but you know everything that you need to know about God. It's enshrined uh, here in Scripture. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. So uh, whenever you hear someone say that Jesus is not the Messiah, Jesus is not God, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is not necessarily the Antichrist, but it's the spirit of Antichrist that, that pervades society today. And basically what people are saying is, Jesus is not God. You are. You are. And that's the message that we hear all around us today. You not only hear it in magazines that are obviously evil, but you hear it in Reader's Digest and National Geographic and Women's Home Journal and the uh, so-called nice magazines, clean magazines that we read. It's this notion that we don't need God, we don't need a Savior. Man is the measure of all things. All we need is what resources we have within ourselves. You are God. I think I mentioned before, back in the 60s, Francis Schaeffer pointed out, uh, well, let me ask you the question. What do you think was the most dangerous movie in the 1960s? It wasn't behind the green door. It wasn't the yellow submarine. It was the sound of music. If you remember the scene, by the way, the Von Trapp family were were committed Christians. That's not widely known, but they were. But nothing is said about their faith in that movie. Not one word is said about their confidence in God when they went through those uh, that very difficult time. The thing that stands out in that movie is Julie Andrews making her way to the Von Trapp Palace, swinging her carpet bag and singing, I believe in me. That's humanism. That's idolatry, you see. And it's that subtle lie that's insinuated into, into all of society that gets through our defenses, and after a while we start believing it. And John says here in 1 John, beware, beware. There are many antichrists, and then there will be this one antichrist, uh, antichrist who will embody this lie. Now I want you to look at one other passage, Revelation 13, and then we'll go back to our Second Thessalonians passage. Uh, again, I'm not going to take time to try to interpret the book of Revelation to you, except to say that the dragon in 13.1 is the evil one who is skulking around behind the scenes, who is responsible for all the evil doing that goes on now and in the future. Uh, John sees a beast coming out of the sea. That's normally identified by some political entity, certainly referred to the Roman Empire in Paul's day. But it also seems to refer to some latter-day manifestation, some 
uh, political entity in the, in the, at the very end of history, just before our Lord comes back. Uh, what happens here is that nationalism is elevated to the level of idolatry, and people worship the state as they did in, uh, in John's day. Uh, if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you had to bow down to the Caesar. The Caesar was God. And you were called a Caesarianus, uh, a devotee of, of Caesar, or you were a devotee of Christ. And if you were a devotee of Christ, then you probably went to the arena. Uh, and then in verse 11, Paul says, I saw another, or John says, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. But he spoke like a dragon. That's a very significant statement. He looks gentle, uh, benign, no malevolence in him. He, he looks like a lamb. He looks like the Messiah. He'd be a, a grandfatherly, kindly, gentle, gracious, thoughtful, sensitive person. But he speaks like a dragon. In other words, what comes out of his mouth is believe in man. That's been the lie of the evil one from the very beginning. You hear the hiss of the dragon when he opens his mouth. And we've all known people like that, and the lie is so seductive when it comes in that form. Because these are people that seem to have their lives together. They seem to have wonderful families. They seem to be caring folks. And yet when they speak to us, what we hear is the lie. Believe in yourself. And John goes on to tell us that those who follow this second beast receive in their forehead a mark. Uh, verse uh, 17, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. In other words, there must be unqualified allegiance to this uh, philosophy. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. I think I have talked about that number here before. I know I have to the men on Wednesday morning. Uh, the middle of my phone number is 666, which might be alarming, 3766607. Uh, you know, we're all concerned about having tattoos on our foreheads and arms that say 666. But I think we misunderstand the symbolism. John is not talking about some literal number, which we will bear during this, or some will bear during the uh, this period of great tribulation. He's rather talking about something that's in the head, it's in the attitude, and it's in the hands, it's on the hands, it's in the actions, and it has to do with man. John tells us it's the number of man. Six is the number of man. Three is the number of God. So six in triplicate is man elevated to the position of God. It's humanism again. That's all it is. And in contrast, John describes the 144,000 in, in chapter 14 who have Jesus' name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. In other words, they're centered on the Lord. They've made the Lord the center of their life. In contrast to those that John describes as the earth dwellers, those whose, uh, whose limits, whose perspective goes no, no farther than what they can see and hear and touch and taste, just what, what's observable, and they center on themselves. And uh, John says, really, there are only, those are the only two kinds of people in the world. There are those that center on themselves, and there are those that are centered on God. And behind this uh, philosophy of centering on yourself is the evil one who wants to destroy. Now, let's go back to Second Thessalonians. 
You still with me? Everybody confused? Now, Paul describes uh, this process as the mystery of lawlessness. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. What is this? It's something that's already with us. Its final manifestation will be in the end, but it's with us today. It's working now, working its way like leaven out through society. What is it? Well, it's this idea that we've been talking about, that man is God. That's what causes lawlessness. Paul makes that very clear in 2 Timothy when he says uh, the trouble with the world is that we love ourselves rather than God. And that's what causes marital upset and that's what causes uh, uh, this, you know, the terrible abuse of wives and it's what causes uh, us to harm the harmless and to take the life of unborn people and it's because we love ourselves, basically. We're, we're centering upon ourselves. That's the fundamental problem. And Paul says, that's a mystery. That's the mystery of lawlessness. In other words, that's something that could not be known apart from revelation. See, that's why good laws, just laws, good government, penal reform, social programs don't work. Because they don't deal with the heart. Uh, the problem is far greater than ignorance or environment. You know, slum clearance is not going to help this problem. More education won't help this problem. It's a problem that, that goes, goes clear to the heart. The problem is that we are centered upon ourselves. And this, what he calls the mystery of lawlessness, is going to continue to work. It's going to pervade society until the very end when the one who now holds it back, as he puts it, is taken out of the way. In other words, God will simply take his hands off of us and we will see what we're really like. Everything that's in the heart is going to come out. So Paul tells us, don't be deceived. Let me read verse 9. Pardon me, verse 8, he does tell us that when this lawless one is revealed... When the Lord comes, he will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. But then he describes what his coming is like, what his character is like. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. You see, he's very much like Jesus. He has a coming. In fact, the word that's used for coming, parousia, here in verse 9, is exactly the same word that's used in verse 8 when we're told that Jesus would destroy this one by the splendor of his coming. It's parousia. Uh, he has, he works counterfeit miracles, wonders, just as our Lord worked miracles. He will have disciples. Uh, these are described as those that are deceived and who are perishing. And there is a supernatural power at work that gives him his authority and a power and power. His coming, Paul tells us, will be in accord with the work of, of Satan. And he looks so good, he's going to deceive virtually the whole world, except those that have the, the mark of the Lord Jesus. They bear in their forehead and on their hands the name of, of the Lord Jesus. You notice how Paul puts it? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie 
and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Jesus said that this, uh, in, in Matthew 24, he describes the coming of this individual and he says that he will be so, so plausible that were it not for the intervention of God, even the elect would be deceived. He will look so good. And you see, this is the problem today. It's going to be the problem then when this man puts in his appearance. But it's the problem now. Evil looks so good. And when we hear these appeals to uh, be your own man, be your own woman, do your own thing, live your own life, you have everything it takes, you and God are one, uh, it sounds so good to us and we are so easily deceived. And the question comes to mind, how can we prevent this deception? Suppose we're overwhelmed by the lie and, uh, and we begin to believe it. How can we guard against it? Well, you notice what Paul says. This is very interesting. And I, if you were thinking when I read through this passage, and if you haven't thought about this passage before, you were probably troubled by what Paul says in verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth. See, it's not that God wants anyone to be deceived, but when we choose to be deceived, when we choose to believe the lie, then after a while God will let us believe the lie. He will simply take his hands off of us and he will let us go. So the only way to be guarded from deception is to love the truth. Love this book, which means to submit to it, listen to it, read it, let it do its work. Remember uh, Paul uh, Earlier in First Thessalonians says, this is the word of God which is at work among you. This is not the word of men, he says, but this is the word of God which is doing its work among you. And here in Second Thessalonians, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is at work in the world. So that side by side, the lie is going out alongside the truth. And the only way to be kept from being deceived by the lie is to listen to the truth, to love it. Now, let me illustrate from, from the Old Testament in the few minutes that I have left. If you want to turn with me to the passage that I'm thinking of, it's in First Kings 22, but I'll simply tell you the story. It's a, an amazing story. It troubles many people. It, uh, it happened in the 9th century B.C. Uh, there was a good king by the name of Jehoshaphat, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahab, wicked Ahab, whose wife was Jezebel, was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab invited uh, Jehoshaphat to a banquet. The purpose of the banquet was to seduce Jehoshaphat into an alliance with him against the Syrians. Ahab up in the north had formed a non-aggression pact with the Assyrians across the Jordan River. And now he intended to, um, to attack uh, Ramoth Gilead, which was the capital of Syria. He was going to violate that contract. He tried to get Jehoshaphat to go in with him. Jehoshaphat said, wait a minute, I, I, I smell a rat here. There's something wrong with this. Have you asked God about this, uh, this matter? And Ahab said, well, uh, yeah, I've been talking to the prophets. And Jehoshaphat said, well, let me hear some of these prophets. So 
Ahab trotted out his best prophets. And uh, one of them by the name of Zedekiah put a kind of a football helmet on his head with horns on it, and he went around goring people saying, this is what you're going to do to, to the Syrians. And others predicted, if you go up against the Assyrians, you'll prevail. Jehoshaphat says, uh, 